Good morning, Redeemer. It's good to be together, isn't it? It's good to know that the church is not a place, but a people. That's us as we move around. It's so good to see so many who've returned. We're excited about this new place and I look forward to seeing what God does here. How you doing? How's everybody doing? Ooh, some, some good? Some, you know, some... I'm getting, yeah, some are really good. Some are... Hey, have, have you ever been in distress? Say you're not now, but have you ever been in distress? Have you ever been caught in rebellion? Your own. Have you ever been in the midst of hellish suffering? How about all three? Maybe it's not you, but someone you know. Someone close to you, so that actually their suffering was also your suffering. Maybe, maybe you knew exactly why the suffering came to you. You could pinpoint your rebellion and you knew why you were suffering. And maybe it seems completely random. Did the result make your life seem like a, a mess? Did you long, long for a rescue? Some of you right here are in the midst of that um, belly of the whale experience. You feel the waves and the breakers sweeping over you. Some of you right here feel, feel banished from the Lord's sight as if you've sunk to the depths. As if your life was ebbing away. Hey, I have a passage for you. It's called Jonah, chapter 2. Last week we saw what a mess Jonah had gotten himself into. The prophet of God, Jonah, had rebelled. In chapter 1, he was called by God to go one way, he went another. He books passage on a ship to Tarshish. Though he was supposed to go overland to Nineveh, Tarshish being the exact opposite direction to God's call. God stopped his rebellious travel by sending a storm, highlighting really how dangerous rebellion is. It was rebellious danger to the sailors. It was dangerous to the entire city of Nineveh. But even then he was stubborn. The direction of God's demands in his life seemed so wrong that Jonah would have been rather thrown into the ocean than to simply repent, turn, and go to Nineveh. Jonah was confident, so confident, that his way was better than God's way. He's a mess. His circumstances, his theology, his walk with God, as we mentioned last week, there's something strange about Jonah here. That Jonah is a rebellious prophet, but he's also an image of Jesus. That it's all tied together, his personhood and his image. Despite Jonah's sin, God used Jonah's life to create an image of Christ. 
So just as Jonah was called to preach to the nations, Jesus is the message for all nations today. Just as Jonah was sacrificed to appease the wrath of God in the storm, so Jesus was sacrificed to appease the wrath of God on the cross. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, Jesus was in the belly of the, of the earth after His crucifixion. Jesus Himself said the sign given for His generation was the sign of Jonah. Three days, three nights in the belly of the whale as Tom read for us earlier. And so we ended the first chapter last week when God in His grace appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. You know, it's interesting to note that many people would have thought that would have been the end of the book of Jonah, you know? Many people would see God that away. You have a rebellious prophet, how do you deal with him? Throw him overboard, make him fish food, right? And then God will go find some more worthy prophet to announce doom to Nineveh. But you see, the the mission to Nineveh was not about their doom. It was about their mercy. Of course God shows mercy to Jonah. That's who he is. He's a God of grace. He's the God of mercy. He's the God who gives salvation. He's the God of steadfast love. Don't forfeit grace and love that could be yours for the idols of the world. Don't miss His grace extended to you. Don't miss that He is the only one in which salvation can be found. Those those are the themes. Those are the words of Jonah chapter 2. Let's read it. Let's read it together. I've actually broken this section into four parts, uh, which will frame the four points of today's message. Jonah's overview of what happened to him when he was swallowed in verse 1 through 2. Jonah's prayerful reflection of what happened in his life and comments about suffering in verses 3 through 6. Then Jonah's prayer concerning true religion with comments about idolatry in 7 through 9. And finally, Jonah's rebirth in verse 10. Here's the overview, verse 1 and 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. What God did to Jonah, verses 3 through 7. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountain. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up, my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. True faith and true religion, verses 7 through 9. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And then Jonah's rebirth, verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, 
and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Well, we'll notice right here at the start of chapter 2, Jonah prays. (laughs) It's the first time he's prayed. Now, personally, I don't know about you, but personally, if I'd gone through the other events of the day, I would have prayed long before this point. The storms, the shouting, the calls for prayer, cargo being tossed overboard, the rowing. I would have cried out for prayer far sooner. But apparently things needed to get much, much worse for Jonah. And when his prayer does come, it's in the midst of distress, a hellish place. You know, many in the world think that the place of prayer is the church. Many think that kinds of prayers that God hears are from people who have it all together spiritually. Not so. These prayers come from the belly of an animal in verse 1. Jonah says in verse 2, it's close to the place of the dead. And it comes from a rebellious prophet. The worst possible place, the most desperate time from a guy who has rejected the direction of God in his life. And God hears him. He hears him. He hears us too. It doesn't matter what kind of mess you're in. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter what kind of rebel you've been. How you've set yourself up against God. God hears the prayers of faith when we cry out to Him, the true and living God. Let's look at how that happened in verses 3 through 6. Jonas gives us a description of his life, about what he did. We mentioned that Jonah was going the opposite direction of Nineveh, uh, that he was going diametrically opposed when he he fled to Tarshish. But actually, the biblical imagery, the, the biblical direction of Jonah's life is down. Do you see that? He's going... He's going down. Actually, that's what I wanted the, the title of the sermon to be. Jonah's going down. But there's too many different cultures here to get that. So I Look at it. He went down to Joppa to book a fare on the ship. He went down into the ship's belly to sleep. He went down into the ocean when he was thrown overboard. He sinks further down into the deep to the very roots of the mountain where there's no further place to go down because it's Sheol, hell itself. It's rock bottom. The image here in chapter 2 is of Jonah being thrown over and sinking, sinking, sinking till he hits the bottom. And that's when he's eaten by the fish. But, but more important than the direction of Jonah's trajectory is who put him there. Look at that in, in verse 3. It's God. You cast me into the deep, Jonah prays. How could that be? What Wasn't it the pagan sailors who tossed him overboard? No, Jonah rightly understands that it was God. Look at the rest of the verse. It's not just God that cast him into the deep. It's God's waves. It's God's billows that drives him to sink down, to be cast from the place of God, where the seaweed wraps around his head, where the bars of hell itself close around him. It's the pit of death itself. 
God did that? Yes, God did that. Hard times came to Jonah at the hand of God. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes there's a little hitch in me about that. So often we we want to call the hard things in our lives some kind of evil, some kind of calamity, something somehow outside of the, the rule and reign of God, outside of His sovereignty. But we should not be that quick in our judgment. God doesn't do things the way we do things. He's not afraid of the things we're afraid of. Often the very thing that seems the worst in our lives is that which brings salvation. After my sister's second divorce, she shows up on my doorstep. Oh, she had all the trappings of success. She was a partner in the chartered accountant firm that she was a part of. She had lots of money. She's beautiful. Smoking her cigarette, throws it on the ground. I've been watching you when I open the door. Linda, come on in. Come on in. I don't know why I'm here. I know why she's here. I guess I'm just so ashamed of my life. Oh, let me tell you the one who came to take away our shame. Let me tell you about him. I was able to see my sister come to faith that night as I explained to her the gospel of Christ. And to this day, she walks with the Lord. To this day, almost two decades later, she points to the hardship in her life that squeezed her to my doorstep. She points to the difficult things that brought her to God. The thing that seemed most like disaster for Jonah, like being eaten by a great fish, was actually the sovereign plan of God. And we should not be surprised by that, those of us who follow Christ. After all, the God we follow is the God of a cross. What looked to be the greatest disaster the world had ever known, nailing the Holy One, the author of life, to a Roman gibbet, was actually what brought God's sovereign plan of redemption and salvation to us. Somehow, and in some way, suffering is a part of all life. It's a part of God's redemption. He has entered into it with us. And if suffering is a part of all life, even for God's prophets, even for God Himself, we need to think it through. So I have three things, three things I want to give you about why we suffer And six things, six things to remember when we do. Number one, sometimes we suffer, sometimes, because of the direct consequences of our sinful action. Just like Jonah, you're suffering because you thought you knew better than God. Now, even as I, even as I say that, I think we, we realize how silly that is. God made us. He knows us. He calls us. He knows what's good for us. And yet, often, some of the greatest sin, some of the greatest difficulty, some of the greatest suffering in our life happens because we thought we knew better than God. Just like Jonah. We thought the direction that we would take was better. We think 
somehow, that all, all the laws and all the commands that God would give us are somehow not for our good. We, we, would, we would see those things which God instructs us to do as somehow snuffing out fun, right? No, it's, it's not true. Everything, everything about the commands of God have some part in it for your good. They're for you. And when we, when we don't believe it, when we disregard it, when we go the other direction, we suffer. I work with, um, often, with university students. And of course, the idea of God's direction in their lives is kind of important, right? All students want to know the direction of God's will in their life. That, that usually, and you, know, you can usually boil that down to, is who am I going to marry, right? What's, what's her name? <laughs> and I love to tell them that I know the direction of God's will in their life. I tell them that all the time. They say, really? Tell me. <laughs> I know the direction of God's will in your life, too. It's always towards Jesus. Do you want to know the direction of God's will in your, your life? It's towards God towards Him. Which is the point of His commands. To bring us to Him. Now, I will say, I, I, I'll just tell you, students are usually pretty disappointed about that. But God works it out. Two, sometimes we suffer because we live in a broken, sinful world. The world is in rebellion. A broken world has sickness and death. Hurricanes and fires, wars. Entire hockey team was destroyed yesterday, day before yesterday in Russia as the, their plane went down. The bomb attacks in Delhi. This weekend we celebrate 9-11 as much as you might celebrate that. We remember 9-11. In Pakistan, they live through 9-11 every day. You know, in the year 2010, on average, six terrorists attack a day, every day, in 2010. The world is filled with people who have sinful hearts, broken people who desire to harm us. But remember, God did not spare His own Son from suffering. He is the incarnate God who entered into our world and took on our death, our suffering, our pain. Jesus said no servant is greater than his master so that if he suffered, we will suffer. We suffer simply because we're in the world. Thirdly, sometimes we suffer because we follow Jesus. Jesus said it clearly in John 15, 18 through 19. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. This is Jesus speaking. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If you follow Jesus, there will be those who hate you. Three things. Three things to remember. There is direct consequences to our rebellion. 
We live in a broken world, number two. And thirdly, sometimes when we follow Christ, we will be persecuted. Now I want to give you six things to remember about suffering. Number one, in all suffering, we become more like Jesus if we humble ourselves in that suffering, no matter what the reason the suffering comes to us. You understand? So even if you're rebellious and you suffer, or it's just random, you don't know why, but it comes to you. If you will humble yourself in the midst of suffering, if you remember Christ, we will become more like Jesus, whether it's your fault or not. God uses suffering to burn out the dross of our life. It's the way of purification. And when purification comes, it's opportunity to see things from God's perspective. As C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in the good times, shouts in the bad. Two, if we will let it, all suffering gives us compassion for others, to identify with the sufferings of others in a fallen world. Our sufferings help us speak into a world of suffering. This is the way God redeems suffering. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3-4. through 4. Blessed be the Lord Jesus Christ who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we might be able to comfort those who are in affliction. Do you see that? Your sufferings are redeemed so that you can care for others. Thirdly, Paul also teaches a goal for suffering in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Now, anybody, anybody with two wits to rub together, anybody who can think, has got to hear that verse and say, Paul, are you kidding? Are you kidding? To share in his sufferings? Have you seen the passion of Christ? I mean, like Paul. Come on. You know, the, the blood and the pain and the cross. What is that? No, he's not kidding. He's not kidding. The way of greater discipleship the way of a closer walk, the way of knowing God and His power, clearly is to become like Him in His death. That we lay down our lives for Him. We're willing to lay down our lives. Four. You won't always know why you suffer. We rarely know in the moment. We often don't know in the future. How many many times... Have I faced suffering in my life without any understanding of why until years later? Some things I never understand at all on this side of death. Often suffering comes to us and we don't understand it, but we must trust God. Trust the Lord. Jonah didn't know he was an image of Jesus. Paul had a thorn in his flesh that that pointed to God's grace. And Paul said he asked that it be removed three times. And yet the only response was, my grace is sufficient to you. He didn't know why. Have you read the book of Job? Let me, let me give you, the, let me give you the, the, the whole point of the entire book of Job. It's a very long book. So here's the, here's the, here's the point. 
you get this, you know the whole book. You know the story. Job lost everything. All his health, all his wealth. His family too. He lost it all. Because there was something going on he didn't know about. Satan had come to God and accused Job of only following God because, because God gave him things, right? So, so God says, take everything away. He will serve me. The, the point is, Job and his life proves Satan a liar and God true. And yet he never knew. Job never knew that that was going on. You see, there's spiritual realities. There's spiritual things that we don't know about. We think this is it. We think the physical world is real, right? Listen, the spiritual world is more real than where we're sitting right now. The chair you're sitting in is less real than the spiritual realms. And things go on there we simply don't know about. Even if God uses your life as an instrument to point to the worthiness of following Him, like He did with Job, it's worth it. It's worth it, though we may never know. Fifth, remember you're not alone in suffering. Read, read the Psalms. Read the Bible. But read the Psalms. Read, read the passion of Christ. Remember how Christ suffered. Remember we follow a God on a cross, this suffering Savior. There is no other God like that who can love us in our sufferings out of understanding. He knows our pain. He remembers that we are made of dust because He was as well. Sixth, finally, remember there's hope in this life and the life to come. One day there will be no more pain. It's our future glory, our future hope. Jonah even says as he drowns in verse 5 that there's hope. And hope at the end of verse 6 where he says, you brought up my life from the pit. You brought up my life from the pit. You notice that's the first mention of up in the book since chapter 1, verse 1, when God said to, to, to Jonah, rise up and go to Nineveh. Everything else after that was down until this point. You brought my life up from the pit. Things are looking up. It's all been downhill until now, but finally, things are looking up for Jonah. Let's look in verses 7 through 9 about true faith and true religion. This is, 7 through 9 is kind of a commentary about Jonah's response to God. And in verse 7, Jonah sends out that emergency prayer, that 999 prayer. Is it 999 or 997 prayer, right? Like one calls the fire department here and one calls, you need to know this. There's a, and, uh, you know, it's that kind, of, that kind of prayer, that 999 prayer. You, you pray that prayer, right? Oh, oh God, help me. I, re- I remember when our first son was born, and um, his name is Tristan, he's, he's here, he goes to UCCD, and um, Tristan was born rather quickly, it took about an hour, and so we, I was, we were in and out. And uh, people ask me, how, how, did, how did Leanne do? How, how, you know, how did, I said, oh, it was wonderful. She prayed. She really prayed. 
Help me, Jesus. Oh, help me, Jesus. There was not a single word in that prayer that she didn't emphasize. So it was, help me, Jesus. It was, help me, Jesus. It was, help me, Jesus. Right? You know, each, each word was carefully, thoughtfully, meditatively prayed. That kind of prayer, right? 911 prayer. And after his 999 prayer, Jonah gives us in verse 8 a commentary about idols. Now at first, I, I, I kinda, I, it, was, it looks like it was just random, this random little comment about idolatry. I, and at first glance, it's kind of like the idolatry of the sailors in the ship, perhaps. But at second look, I think Jonah's making the right comparison of true and false worship. Notice Jonah contrasts idols with true worship. He says that idols are false or vain. They're vain religion. They forfeit God's love in verse 8. There's no hope in them. It's vain to think that they could save. Now, I think most of us, when we think of idols, and especially read about them in, in the Scriptures, we think of carved images that people bow down to, and certainly that kind of idolatry, traditional idols are alive and well on planet Earth. Many of you here from the subcontinent can tell you that that's true. But idols are firmly rooted in the sphere of our hearts as well. For example, Paul in Colossians 3.5 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, why, why are these internal sins of the heart, mostly, by the way, just sexual sins, idols? We, un- we understand how carved images are idols, but what about the sins of the heart? Well they're, well, they're idols because anything that intrudes into our heart in front of God, that sets itself in front of God, is idolatry. So idolatry is just another way to say false gods, putting things in our heart that are before God, which is why Calvin said that our hearts are endless manufacturers of idols. So I should ask you, what things intrude on your relationship with God? Is it, is it graven images? Maybe for some of us it is. What about cars? Another kind of graven image. Your own company. Money, sex, popularity, the right academic degrees. You should know that when you do worship these, you forfeit God's love. Recently I was with a student who was worried about her love of shopping. She said, I think I have an idol in my heart. It's called shopping. And I said, well, well, maybe. Maybe it is. But, you know, shopping, shopping could be a good gift from God, too. It's not particularly wicked in and of itself. It's a fun thing to do with other people. We need to do it. Everybody does it. But the way to shine the light on this possible idol in your heart, I said to her, is to make sure that you're practicing as much generosity with others as you are yourself. So when you're shopping, are you giving those things away? Oh, she said, that's a good test. <laughs> Listen, the good news about idols is if you practice a faithful life in Christ, 
you're going to discover that God has built a natural way to put to death or chop down these idols in your life if you will trust Him, if you will trust Him with your life. Look, I, I just, by way of illustration, let, let, let's talk about corporate worship. You know, we worship God with all of our lives, but let's, let's talk about corporate worship and how the fact that we gather together at, in community chops out idols, combats idols. We come together and sacrifice our time. We gather as a church and we worship with God's people and so chop away the idolatry of our own personal time. We give our offerings. And so chop down the idolatry of money. We give away our money to slay the idol of materialism. When you write your name on that check to give it away, you're writing that declaration of independence. We sing. We have a voice of thanksgiving. Jonah's words from this passage, a voice of thanksgiving to kill the idol of muttering and grumbling and complaining. We become members together. We, we call all those who love Christ, all those that know His saving power in their lives, to become members at Redeemer. We, we want you to do that, to slay the idolatry of individualism, to come together and proclaim that Christ is worth being together, to commit to the body of Christ. We listen to the Word. We chop down the idol of our own authority and our own thinking and submit ourselves to God's Word. We pray which chops down the idol of self-sufficiency. You know, the big red flag in my own idolatrous heart is my prayerlessness. The flag goes up when I don't pray, and it says, written on that red flag, you think you can do it yourself. Prayerlessness is always an indication that I feel self-sufficient. It chops it down to go to God corporately in prayer. What I'm saying is, God builds into places... Ways to cut out idols. And if we will worship Him in spirit and truth in all of our life, if we do that as we enter into His presence, we will cut down idols. Notice here that true worship comes with sacrifice. Jonah talks about that in verse 9. He understands that it's empty to say you are a worshiper without sacrifice, especially the great sacrifice of our lives. I think, what, I think what Jonah's talking about here in verse 9 is that he's willing to sacrifice his life in service to God. What I vowed, he says, I will pay. In other words, it may kill me to go to Nineveh, but I'll do it. That's the ultimate idol slayer, isn't it? Because the ultimate idol in your heart is you. Then Jonah says to top it all off at the end of verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. You know, most people think that salvation belongs to me. It belongs to myself. But Jonah didn't see it that way. After all, Jonah didn't do anything for his own salvation anyhow. He's on the bottom of the ocean. God provided the whale. It was just there. God did it. And I guess if we think about it, it makes sense. God is the author of life. We didn't choose where to be born. He's the author of our spiritual rebirth. We, we don't choose that either. So you must be careful about thinking that ultimately you're in charge of your spiritual life. I mean, how, how can anyone read the book of Jonah and think they're in charge, right? Listen, if, you, if you're here with us this morning and you're exploring faith 
uh, in Christ. If you're exploring Christianity, we are, we are so thrilled you're here. We, we, just, we love that you're here. You've come to the right place. Because we believe that everyone is created in the image of God. Everyone has the mark of the divine on them. That every, everyone is valuable because of God's mark on them. At the same time, we believe that all are fallen. All, and all have fallen short of God's standards. And so we love, we love to think about what that means to, to, to both know that we are created in the divine image of God and know that we are broken and apart from God. For that is all of us. And we're, we're trying to proclaim to you the way back to God. The way to be reconciled with a holy God. But let me share with those of you who are exploring faith something extremely important. It's in this last sentence in verse 9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. For if you feel drawn to God, and if you're touched in a way in this place, at this time, in a way you've not particularly felt before, you should know that God might be calling you to himself. And that's a precious gift. It's not something you've conjured. not something I've conjured. It's not to be thrown away. I have a friend named Jeff. And I was talking to him this summer about his workplace, which is kind of difficult. He's a stockbroker. And um, somehow he got into a conversation with a colleague, a kind of a cynical colleague, about the gospel, about Christ, about what God has done for us in Christ. And... Um, the fellow, they talked a little bit, but finally dismissed him saying, oh, Jeff, I wish I had your faith. You know, kind of that patronizing, dismissive, I wish I had your faith, you know. And Jeff said wisely, well, I'll pray that for you. Because you see, faith is a gift. We don't, we don't make up faith. Faith comes to us as a gift from God. And I will pray for you that you might know that gift. Listen, if you, if you feel the stirrings of faith in your life, in your heart, in your mind that you've not felt before, you should not, you should not despise that. Because it leads to what Jonah experienced in verse 10, a rebirth. After Jonah prays to God in verse 10, God hears him and commands the whale to spit Jonah up on the dry ground. Actually, the word says, vomited Jonah up onto dry ground. It's a rebirth. It's Jonah's second chance. Actually, it sounds a lot like the first birth. You know, I I referred to Leanne's prayer during her birth. Uh, And um, let me tell you, it's it's a gruesome thing. This first birth. Uh, you know, you see all these beautiful babies dotted around in the congregation. They look so lovely and clean. Let me, let me tell you, when they come out, they don't look like that. And there's a lot of other things that come out with the baby. Gruesome stuff. And so it's no wonder that in Jonah's rebirth, it comes out with fish vomit. All the stuff that was down in the belly of the fish. And that's how the new birth is. It all comes up with our mess. 
We, we shouldn't be surprised that being reborn comes with a mess. The first one did. The second one does too. That's all to say, God is not put off by our messes. Turn to Him. We're offered a rebirth. A second chance too. Turn to Him. Jesus Christ Himself experienced the belly of the whale experience. He was crucified as a sacrifice for our sins in our place and He was put to death and buried in the tomb. After three days, he was raised to life in order to give us new life. For all who would repent and turn and put their complete faith and trust in Christ, we get that marvelous, amazing rebirth, this second chance. You know, one of the interesting things about Jonah is he prefigures Jesus. We see this image of Jesus in Jonah, and we talked about that last week. Um, But he also prefigures what Christians are and what Christians must do. So, So like Jonah, we too were rebellious and stubborn, yet God in His mercy has granted us salvation. When Jonah repents in the belly of the whale, we too must repent of our sin. When Jonah calls out for salvation in faith, we too must call out in faith for the Lord's salvation. And when we do, when we do, salvation happens. For Jonah... And for us. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray that you would not allow one person here to forsake the steadfast love offered through your great mercy. Oh God, I pray that those that do not know you would cry out to you in saving faith. Give them the gift of faith, oh God. Father, those of us who do know you, Father, we recognize the need to put to the death the idols of our heart that get in the way of you. We, We pray, Father, that we would nail those idols to the cross. We pray for you, the God of mercy, the God of second chances, to see us through, Father, our pain and suffering, our our very sin. Forgive us. Have mercy. Have grace, O God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.